Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we tap into the meditative joy of making bread with Dutch baker Issa Neymeyer-Brown. Indeed, with the lockdown, with Corona, everybody had free time. <laughs> everybody was at home. And then it's very satisfying to make your own bread and to dive into it. It really becomes a passion for people. Also in the programme, we travel to Des Moines to discover its growing culinary scene. The scene in Des Moines is... is definitely growing and getting better. It's getting more competitive here, which is something that is fantastic. I like to see that. It makes everything better. Plus, we learn the secrets of running your own domain in the south of France. All that here in the menu on Monocle Radio. The fortunes of artisanal bread have been rising all across the world, with new wave bakeries opening even in cities that didn't have much of a taste for sourdough before. But the simple alchemy of making bread is a timeless practice and many have found pleasure in trying their hand at it. Dutch baker Issa Neymeyer-Brown has written just the book for those looking to go back to basics. Rather appropriately named A Book About Bread, his writing celebrates the fundamental elements and techniques that make great crunchy loaves. His bakery, Gebreuders Neymeyer, in the heart of Amsterdam, specializes in the classics of French baking, but in his book, he shares his secrets when it comes to creating bread from further afield too. I spoke to Issa about his simple, unfussy and almost minimalist approach to making the best possible loaf and why he's still so in love with kneading on a daily basis. Issa, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your wonderful book, which is called A Book About Bread, A Baker's Manual. It's such a stunning thing, really beautifully illustrated, quite poetic in its approach to bread, clearly the sign of a huge passion. And I guess my first question for you is, why do you reckon so many people besides you have discovered such a huge passion and have become so fascinated with making their own bread? They haven't always done so. Perhaps it was a kind of a, a result of lockdown for some, but in general, for the last few years, people have been experimenting with making their own bread a lot more. Why do you think that is and what's behind this passion? I think there's different levels to it and different periods or time frames to refer to. There has been an increase in it. Uh, interest in artisan bread already starting in the 80s, 70s, 80s, especially in the 90s, became stronger, especially in countries where bread was not necessarily always made in the, the best way, where it was more became an industrial product. So especially in the UK, in the US, there are also the first artisan bakeries starting with a new approach. And then there is something that's much more recent. Indeed, with the lockdown, with Corona, Everybody had free time. <laughs> Everybody was at home. And then it's very satisfying to make your own bread and to dive into it. It really becomes a passion for people. So you see that the general trend, which is already going on for a longer time, has been like expanded super rapidly, like picked up by many more people just over the past few years. And it's a very down-to-earth, very earthy product. So I think that also something that satisfies a lot of people. Why do you think it's so satisfying? So many people are into it so much more than perhaps making other things. You know, they get really obsessive with it. And it's not the same as sitting down and making a stew for a few hours. You know, people become really particular about baking bread. And as you say, they get a specific kind of satisfaction out of it. Why is that? I think that the nice thing about making bread is that you need very few ingredients. It's very, very basic. So it also appeals to a very basic level of the human being, I would say. You only need flour and water and salt 
And then you can already make your own bread. You can simplify it by adding a bit of yeast, uh, just a little bit. You can buy it in any supermarket. And you can create many, many different kinds of bread and develop the flavor just like how you would like it to be. So you start with almost nothing. It feels very pure. And then it's super satisfying to see how you've created a loaf that's shiny and that has a really nice smell. And it's one of the smells that people like the most. It looks beautiful. It tastes really delicious. And you make it from scratch yourself. And I think that's what appeals to many people. What about you? How did you first get into bread? And what's your story for this love affair? <laughs> I've always been passionate about baking, even as a child, baking, cooking, both pastries and bread. And I think bread is also something that is literally alive. There's little organisms living in the dough and you create bread together with them. And I think that's also particularly satisfying and interesting. It's not always the same. When you make a pastry recipe, you can follow instructions very carefully. You can work on your technical skill and then you know exactly what the result will be. And with bread, you're really interacting with live organisms. And that's the reason why it keeps on being interesting. And I've been a professional baker now for 15 years and a home baker before that. And every time I take loaves out of the oven, it still gives me a lot of satisfaction. Well, I love that interplay between almost science and art. You know, in the introduction to your book, you talk a lot about how you loved experimenting when you were younger and you were a bit resistant to following recipes. So where does this... I guess, balance between the precision of having to go by quite a specific amount of ingredients and process, marry with improvisation and the unpredictability, as you say, of the fact that you are working with something alive and you kind of can't quite predict what the result's going to be. Where's the balance between the science, the art, the precision, the improv? I, I think the main thing that combines it all is intuition. So, so once you have a bit of knowledge about bread, once and the book is oriented to, to help you develop that knowledge, the basic understanding of what could happen in the dough. Your intuition is actually your best guide while you're making, while you're making a dough and while you're making bread. You need to be precise when you measure up salt, like you don't want too much salt or too little salt. But the rest could be by feel. You, you don't even need to weigh the flour and the water. Of course, when you start, it's, it's a good way to start. But at some point, you can just feel the consistency of a dough. You can see how it develops. You can improvise with the time that you give for the, the first part of the development before you shape the loaves, the, the time after. And I find that many home bakers, they're really looking to understand everything in detail and work out a formula that will always work and a process that will always work and have everything under control, the, the humidity in the room where you're working anything. But I find that if you are open to what happens in the dough and if you work on developing your intuition and are open to that, you can create far better loaves and for more satisfying results. And it's a nicer way of working. You don't need to be as precise as you would, for instance, be with making a, a very delicate pastry. I love that at the end of the book, you have a small chapter that's called Making Your Own Choices, which allows you to kind of personalise the recipes that you've presented. I wonder how much then bread is personal. And if that, how is your bread a representation of your personality? Where does your personality shine in your choices that you make when you bake your own bread? I think to start with the last part, but my own personality comes into the love of the pure and the simple. <laughs> like I, I really get a lot of joy out of baking bread on its own. It doesn't need any additions. It's really nice to have bread that you can use as a complement to any meal. But the basic pure joy is just like letting the bread develop, having a really beautiful crust. So all my choices that I made are geared towards 
getting maximum flavor with the minimum amount of ingredients and getting a really nice open structure of the loaf, uh, really beautiful crunchy crust, which is like the classic French ideal bread, ideal loaf. So that, that's the part where, where my personal choices come in. This is also a good moment to get back to intuition in baking. The main thing I try to teach apprentice bakers in our bakery is to become aware of what they're doing. So not to try to obsessively calculate everything, not to like follow every step to the detail and have a fixed idea of what should happen during the process of the development of the dough, but actually see what they're doing, feel what they're doing. And like just touching a dough in one second, if you're open to that, you can learn a lot about it. The consistency, the way it feels, the texture will tell you a lot about what's happening inside of the dough. And if you just follow a recipe in a fixed number of routines, then you very easily miss out on that. So developing intuition and letting the personal come to play here, though, it, it, it's mostly letting yourself be aware and listening to yourself. And like, if you feel something that's a little bit different, then maybe it is a little bit different. And you need to make an adjustment rather than sticking to your original plan. It sounds so meditative and such a different way of learning to trust our own senses, which I feel like lots of people have forgotten about in a rush to make sure that everything goes exactly to plan. So it's it's wonderful to hear you talk about it like this. Now for the next question, there's a lot of wonderful recipes in this book, but I wonder which is your absolute favourite, if you had to pick just the one that is most representative of what you do. I think just the basic baguette would be the most representative bread because you use really very very little and it's all about the flavor you develop and the baguette we make is without sourdough I, i really love sourdough bread as well but sourdough already adds a whole range of flavors that you have developed by creating your own sourdough starter so it's still very natural and it's actually in some ways more natural but it's already geared to a certain direction when you make a baguette you can really taste the flavor of the, the grains themselves and let those develop. You can have a bit of a nutty flavor, a little subtle sweetness. So it's a very pure bread that's really about developing flavor from the grain itself in a very direct way. So the baguette would be the most representative, I think. I do wonder, when I think about French and Italian bread culture. Growing up in Italy, bread was never considered a luxury product, if that makes sense. You know, there's so many bakeries, local bakeries around every neighborhood, and they don't have to be new wave. You can go and get fantastic bread from a fairly down-to-earth bakery, and it's cheap. And one of the things that I have noticed from a kind of a new wave of baking around Europe and beyond is that it's kind of turned bread into almost like a luxury item in certain respects. Sometimes you you can pay quite a lot for an amazing sourdough loaf. So I wonder what you feel of that in terms of someone who actually has a bakery. How do you approach presenting your bread? You have to have pride in your craft and price it the way that it reflects the amount of work and wisdom that has gone into it. But at the same time, are we presenting it in a way that is different from what fundamentally bread is, the most basic amazing food that people have been eating for millennia. Yeah, well, we, we try to do something different than most bakeries in that sense. You're right. Many bakeries try to present bread as something that is like very valuable, very like it's, it's artisanal. So the price should go up a little bit. And even if it's not artisanal, having a bit of a higher price makes it look artisanal. <laughs> it's a lot about the presentation of it. And it's not very accessible for daily use for many people. 
And in our bakery, what we try to do is to, to make it something, a daily product for anybody from the neighborhood. So we are very much like a classic countryside Italian bakery in that sense, or French bakery, where bread doesn't need to cost much. It does mean that we have to work really hard because we do want to make artisanal bread and we do everything by hand, but we basically have to compete with the industrial bakeries where things are, of course, produced at a very large scale at very low cost. So what we have learned, even though we put a lot of feeling and intuition and care into the dough to, to make our decisions very quickly, that's also where intuition comes in handy because intuition is a very fast moving mechanism. So if I make baguettes, I can shape and weigh and get them ready about 300 baguettes in one hour, not the development of the dough, but just the, the making of the baguette, the shaping of it. So it's a very high pace. But in the one second that I touch one of those baguettes individually, I know a lot. I know, oh, I want to, to give them a little bit more time on the bench resting before I give a final shape to them, or I'll change the temperature a little bit for the development that comes after. So I make a lot of decisions in a very small time, and that's actually where intuition comes in handy. So intuition is not just only romantic, it's not just like a very like slow pace, taking a lot of time for the product, but it means also, it means being open to your intuition. And at first glance, just like when you meet somebody at first glance, you know a lot. Same with the dough. Many artisanal bakeries at the moment, they come from a different background and they, they come from a background where like not the classical baker where it's really hard work. People are not necessarily used to working really, really hard. And they have a romantic notion of what it means to make bread. And they will take a lot of more time shaping and judging and evaluating, standing still. And that costs a lot of money and labor is more expensive. So naturally the prices will rise. We try to avoid that. We try to keep our bread very accessible. That was Issa Neymeyer-Brown. You're listening to The Menu. Now we head to the US Midwest and in particular to Iowa's state capital, Des Moines. Over the last few weeks, the city has been getting a lot of attention because of the US Republican primaries, but its blossoming food scene is what we're interested in here. Plenty of ambitious new restaurants have opened in the city in recent years and Clyde's Fine Diner might be one of the best. It launched in 2019 with the stated aim of elevating US diner classics from juicy burgers to fresh oysters, soft serve and sundaes. Monocle's Thomas Lewis met head chef and founder Chris Hoffman, who began by telling him the story behind his dining room's name. Clyde himself is my grandfather, so this is a place that's built kind of to his homage. He was the first person that I ever cooked with and sort of got those juices flowing. Some of the menu is an homage to him as well. He was a southern guy. He was from uh, Belasta, Georgia, so there will always be grits on our menu. He was a very interesting guy. He also uh, was an animator for the Popeye cartoon. So a lot of the, the branding and the logos and such are things that are pulled from his artwork. You know, the chef that's up there that is pulled directly from a comic strip that he drew for a GI newspaper when he was in the army as a cartographer. And uh, some of the other bits around here are a little homage to him. There's a picture of him on the wall over there. So lovely. And the chef is blowing a whistle, is that right? The chef is blowing the whistle. He's actually calling the soldiers to the mess hall in that, in that, cart, in oh, that cartoon. Oh, fa- fantastic. That's um, so brilliant. So I'm a later in life career changer. I'm a former sound engineer. I used to tour with bands and mix sound for a bunch of pretty famous acts. I had a lot of good success there. Am I allowed to ask for a name drop or two? I know. <laughs> I, I, I will. I worked for... Uh, 
I worked for the Stones. I did the first Van Halen reunion tour. Uh, I worked with the Allman Brothers. I worked with Wilco, Incubus, Deftones, a bunch of other bands there in between too. And uh, at some point, I sort of started to lose my hearing, which is also something that runs in my family. That was compounded by years of, of very loud rock music. And cooking had always been my, my other real passion. So eventually I decided that I was gonna have to get out, off the road and out of the sound business. And I went to culinary school and then started working for a bunch of chefs in Chicago, most predominantly Paul Verant, and uh, kind of just went from there, always with the intention of opening my own place. And when we decided, my family and I decided to open, we decided to look around. Living in the city of Chicago wasn't, we weren't enjoying it as much as we used to. So the size of Des Moines is in comparison to Chicago, awfully, awfully small. It also feels smaller than I think the population is. I run into people everywhere I go that I know. I would say in the last five years since I've been here, there's been a lot of growth in the restaurant world. When I came, there were, there were a handful of places that are doing what we do, which is, you know, all scratch cooking based in old school French technique, basically. And that has, that has definitely grown quite a bit since I've been here. There have been a number of places that open and they continue to open. Mm. The scene in Des Moines is, is definitely growing and getting better. It's getting more competitive here, which is something that is fantastic. I like to see that. It makes everything better. And definitely one of the reasons we came to Des Moines and opened here is because I thought that I could compete here and that I could bring something interesting to Des Moines that maybe a niche that, that wasn't being served. So far, that seems to be the case, which is fantastic. So. That's brilliant. And in terms of like the produce, obviously, agriculture sort of natural landscapes and things seems to be the sort of bread and butter of kind of life here for lots of people. Maybe just give us an overview of what that kind of embarrassment of riches is in terms of being a chef and you know where you get your produce from and how that inspires you to... Sure, absolutely. We have close personal relationships with people that we get our produce from and our cheeses. You know, there's a lot of things going on in Iowa. A lot of people that are doing pretty interesting stuff. I mean, it started, I knew about uh, La Quercia is a, a charcuterie. Well, they got famous for their, their prosciutto that was made just outside of Des Moines in, in Norwalk, which I thought was exciting. And all the chefs across the country were using that already. I have about five different farms that I get my produce from during the, the season, which is starting to wind down, which is disappointing. But it's, a, it's different here than it was in Chicago. I mean, here it's, I shoot them a text message or give them a call, they go out and pick the produce and come, come bring it inside. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. The variety here isn't what it's been in some of the bigger markets, but the quality is really fantastic. And in terms of the kitchen, so, you know, in terms of your team here, are most people from Des Moines or do you sort of handpick them from elsewhere? Kind of, how's that kind of mix? When I moved here, I convinced my sous chef to come with me from Chicago. Mm. But everybody else that's here is, is from Des Moines. I run a pretty tight kitchen. We're, we're only 78 seats here. So right now, I've, I employ four cooks other than myself. And two of them were pulled directly from the culinary school here in Des Moines. And in terms of the quality of life, just generally, obviously you moved the family mm -hmm. here. What's that like? Is quality of life quite high in, in Des Moines, would you say? I can only speak for myself, but yes, I think quality of life is, is very, very good. I was also looking for a change of pace. So it is a slower pace than, yeah. than it was living in Chicago. There are more 
open green spaces here, things aren't quite as stressful. To go from sort of, you know, years in, in a pretty high octane sort of world of sort of live music and rock, famously, you know, being in a kitchen isn't sort of a, a leisurely pace of life either. <laughs> you know, where's the next chapter sort of going, I guess, kind of, or to say something about you, I guess, of having this sort of certain tempo that you, you like in your life? Um, I, I Sorry, was just, a bit deep, I right? was kind of just talking about this recently, and, and the joke that I, I, I had made was that, you know, my career trajectory from the outside is, is pretty funny, where it started very, very high, and now I'm blanching french fries. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a joke I make, but the, the reality is that that was the choice that I made, too, and I'm yeah. happy doing it. Yeah, it's, it's a lot different, but when it comes to cooking and live music and mixing, there are just so many things that are analogous and I think that's why I got the hang of cooking as quickly as I did was mixing music and mixing food are so similar where you want to hear everything you want to taste everything and it's the same sort of part of your brain that gets to that composition so that part of my brain is still tickled by what I do now. That was Monocle's Thomas Lewis speaking to Chris Hoffman. You're listening to The Menu. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Mariella Bevan. The president of the Allied Grape Growers, Jeff Bitter, has called for a net reduction of more than 12,000 vineyard hectares in California. The California wine industry is facing an excess market due to changing demand, as younger consumers are swapping wine for spirits and non-alcoholic beverages. This is Bitter's second call to action, with the first coming after the 2019 harvest, when fruit was left unpicked and wine was left unsold. Bitter encouraged wineries to consider removing older vines in the coastal California regions in order to future-proof grape farming. Global cocoa prices have hit a record high as dry weather continues to hurt crops in West Africa. The cost of this key ingredient for chocolate making has now roughly doubled since the start of last year and is already affecting major chocolate makers. U.S. chocolatier Hershey's saw a 6.6% decrease in sales in the fourth quarter, and a Cadbury UK spokesperson said last month on X that the company was increasing prices as a last resort to manage costs. And finally, Adejoke Bakary has become the first black woman to be awarded a Michelin star in the UK. Bakary's restaurant Chishuru specialises in modern West African cuisine, serving dishes including fermented rice cake, bean cake and corn cake. Starting as a pop-up in September 2020, after Bakare won a competition in Brixton Village, the restaurant found a permanent home in Fitzrovia in September 2023. Those are the week's food and drinks headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Mariella. You're listening to The Menu. Becoming a winemaker in the south of France is a dream for many, but it's not all roses. There's many challenges to keep in mind, from climate change to fickle foreign markets. Plus, much as it might sound surprising, the French are now drinking less wine, especially young people. British winemaker Kane McKinley took over Domaine de Mourchon in the hills above the Provençal village of Segre in the southern Rhone Valley around 20 years ago. She has recently turned her production biodynamic and the choice seems to be paying off. Her Côte Durand Village wines have just been named amongst the 100 most interesting in the world by Wine Spectator magazine. Monocle's Michael Booth dropped in to hear about the highs and lows of running a busy vineyard and how she feels about earning a place on this exclusive list. It's 
it did come as a surprise to us, and Wine Spectator is probably the most esteemed magazine in, in the United States for wine. Just really encouraging to know that there are still serious publications out there choosing wines on merit. In the more northern climates of Europe, we're all getting very excited about being able to grow all sorts of different grapes for, for wines. How is climate change affecting you already and what are your concerns about it in the future? This region has always known extreme heat. So in a way, the southern Rhone Valley had a head start on climate change because it had always had that, albeit relatively brief period of extreme heat. The great varieties that we have, the Grenache and Syrah, were already accustomed to that. Now, what we're aware of is that heat coming rather sooner in the growth cycle of the vine. It can come in spikes and then disappear and then come back again. So it has a less predictable element, uh, keeps us on our toes rather. What can you do about it? Um, Is it to do with irrigation that you need to be on your toes about? Actually, we must dry farm. We're not allowed to irrigate. So no irrigation at all, even in July, August? Well, that's how it's always been. There have been changes now that the average temperature is going higher and they give us, depending on how hot it's been and for how long, they will give us special derogation to be allowed to to irrigate. It's very difficult for us to suddenly be allowed to irrigate the 32 hectares that we have for 10 days. There is also another school of thought is that the fact is it's going to keep getting hotter and keep getting drier. So what you really want to do is have trust in the vines. The vines are proving to be extraordinary in their ability to adapt to the conditions. And we believe that if we nurture them properly, that's to say we keep our soil healthy and keep the biodiversity in the vineyard, then that is the best way to get the vines through these extreme periods of heat and drought. And that's why we are now, we've been organic for a few years, but we've now got our biodynamic um, certification. So that shift to biodynamic is partly because of climate change? Entirely because of climate change, yes. And realising that for the long term, your your best asset in this business is the soil. And we are astounded by the vines, how it seems that they every year they learn that there are likely to be surprises. Rather than seeing harvest come earlier because of the heat, very often it's actually going a little bit later because right at the end of the growth season, the uh, maturity comes a little bit later because the vine somehow slows down the maturity process. It's the uh, human aspect of it that worries me. What do you mean by that? These are unstable, unpredictable times. Geopolitics has an impact. You know, whether there are literally we can ship our wines to parts of the world where shipping has become complicated or whether we will have tariffs put onto the wines, for example, Also, behaviour around alcohol is changing. For the domestic market in France, wine consumption is drastically down, particularly amongst younger people. 
It is a real concern to us when the World Health Organization announces that there is no such safe level of alcohol intake and that they suggest that alcohol prices should be raised by 50%. We're already seeing countries putting the prices up. I believe Holland put another 10% of tax onto alcohol at the beginning of this year. And so I think kids are drinking a lot of cocktails and Aperol spritz, craft beers. About 10 years ago, China was buying all of the fine French wines. That was the new market that everyone was very excited about, and it got extremely overheated. How is that now? How did you get on with that China boom? We didn't particularly benefit from the crazy prices thing, but what we did benefit from was the Chinese getting into wine culture. And um, we were selling a good percentage, probably about 20% of our production was going to China for a while. That's just starting to slow down now. A couple of our partners have stopped importing French wine and they're concentrating on Chinese alcohols now. Very clay-rich yes. soil. My, my shoes are sticking to the ground here. So this is our most exposed part of the vineyard. We're up at 350 metres above sea level. One of the most notable aspects of our terroir, our growing conditions, is the mistral. That's the north wind that comes howling down the valley, drives tourists mad, but it's the winemaker's best friend. Oh, really? Why? Because what it does is it comes from the north, so it's cooler and it's dry, and it will clean up your vineyard basically and typically and we don't get typical so much anymore with uh, these crazy weather patterns but typically it would come after rainfall and of course we want rain but what we don't want is the rain the humidity to sit around in the leaf canopy because of course that causes problems with mildew you need to be able to expose the bunches to the right amount of sun at the beginning of the growth cycle But if that sun gets too hot too quickly, you need to be able to go in and pull down the leaf canopy to provide shade because those bunches can actually get sunburned. You might want to spray on a a mud, literally a soil and water mixture onto the bunches so that they have a sort of sunscreen on them. Sunscreen for grapes. All of these things are possible if you have the manpower, okay? But the hard part of running a business in France, of course, is the cost of labour. So we've got a little community of people locally who've harvested with us over the years. They are getting older. I would say the average age is into their early 70s now. So we're down to about five people. Um, We used to always have friends and family from the UK, kids who were in their gap years who'd come and do harvest with us but of course Brexit has made that a little bit more complicated. I mean it's in the middle of January we're standing out here it's a total blue sky the sun is shining Mont Ventoux totally clear in the distance it's so beautiful on the other hand it sounds incredibly complicated and challenging and ever-changing do you ever just think of selling up to Brad Pitt or whoever he has a a vineyard about 100 kilometers south of here put it all up for sale and and move on What, what keeps you here doing this? Good question. It depends on the day. It depends on the days. I'm very happy 
to be staying here as the interim caretaker because there are worse places you could be, that's for sure. That was Michael Booth speaking to Kate McKinley. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's a midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our sound engineers were Mariella Bevan and Lily Austin. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>